Hi, welcome everyone to another in a series of podcasts from Queen's University Belfast. Today we are going to consider coronavirus and its impact on people, specifically on their mental health. Over the past months, we've all been through unprecedented measures, including societal lockdowns and enforced isolation from others as we grapple with the ever-present danger of COVID-19. In this podcast, we'll be looking at what the psychological effects of this will be in future months and years for people and society. We'll ask what lessons we can learn from other episodes of mass trauma, such as 9-11, the Manchester bombing, and indeed, closer to home, the Troubles. My name is Anne Campbell and I'm a Senior Lecturer in Social Work at Queen's and I'm joined today by Kieran Mulholland and Michael Duffy. I now ask Kieran and Michael to introduce themselves and tell us something about why the podcast is taking place. Thank you, Anne. Um, my name is Michael Duffy. I'm a Senior Lecturer uh, at Queen's and the Program Director of the Specialist Masters in Trauma-Focused Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Uh, and that, that MSc course aims to train mental health staff to treat uh, trauma-related conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder and complicated grief. Um, so I started my uh, professional practice in the 1980s, the late 1980s, as a mental health social worker in North Belfast. Uh, and at that stage, of course, in our history, we were surrounded by all sorts of conflict-related traumatic incidents. So uh, conditions such as PTSD uh, were prominent uh, in presentations in our mental health clinics. Um, I trained subsequently as a psychotherapist and a uh, cognitive psychotherapist. And my research interest um, over uh, a number of decades has been related to these conditions of PTSD and more recently, complicated grief. Um, I also led the work of the trauma team in OMA after the bombing in 1998 uh, and subsequently the Northern Ireland Trauma Centre. Um, and in that period, we conducted quite a number of studies uh, relating to the impact of the OMA bombing and other uh, conflict-related traumas and the impact on the mental health of, of the local population. And we conducted a number of clinical trials to try to test out uh, methods, treatment methods, that help people with these conditions. Hello everyone, my name is Kieran Mulholland. I'm a medical doctor and a consultant psychiatrist, and I'm also a senior lecturer at Queen's University Belfast in the School of Medicine. The onset of the pandemic in early 2020 immediately brought my focus to the commonalities between the pandemic and our local experience in Northern Ireland of, of the troubles of the conflict that we've lived through for more than four decades. And I think there are real commonalities. It, it made me think, first of all, about personal experiences, because everyone who's brought up in Northern Ireland during the 1970s, to one extent or another, was affected. And I can remember instances from the 1970s, which I think probably have shaped me. For example, coming home from school in October 1976, uh, I can well remember in the school bus passing a burned out building and we all knew as we looked up that uh, a 26 year old woman had died there two days earlier in a bomb explosion. Uh, and then when the bus turned the corner and moved down the street, we all looked out and saw a, a burnt patch on waste ground and we all knew that uh, a man in his 40s had died there the same day. Uh, and he, he had died in retaliation for the first death. So that type of experience, that, that, that marks everyone, I think, and it, it's there, and we've all been affected by it. And when the coronavirus pandemic uh, arose earlier this year, of course, we immediately recognised it as a form of trauma. Uh, we became intimately involved in the response to the mental health impact of the pandemic. I and others uh, commissioned and organised and wrote a rapid review of the likely mental health impact of the pandemic. And of course, from the very early days, we drew comparisons with the impact of mass trauma events in other places, including our local experience. So that's the context. Uh, I've worked with Michael 
uh, for many, many years, both uh, clinically and in our research efforts. We've done a number of studies which look at the impact of trauma. Uh, and we thought it'd be very useful to organise a podcast such as this in order to draw out the lessons of our local experience in Northern Ireland and help to point the way forward as we continue to navigate this very difficult period for all of us. Okay, thank you both for that overview of your rich um, and knowledgeable uh, career so far and its relevance to trauma. And it's great that we have you here today to to impart that knowledge and place it within the context of the current pandemic. So firstly, can I ask Michael, um, what exactly do we mean when we talk about trauma and how does it affect people? Yeah, this is a really good question, Anne, um, because we are talking about psychological trauma as opposed to physical trauma. Um, and if we think about the troubles again, um, many citizens in our community experienced both forms of trauma. They suffered from very severe physical traumas uh, and were treated very effectively by our uh, specialist teams in the Royal Victoria Hospital. But they also suffered psychological trauma. And we, um, when we talk about psychological trauma, um, it, the most uh, common and uh, condition that arises after a traumatic incident is post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and PTSD is an unusual condition, unlike uh, other mental health problems, because it specifically relates to an incident or a series of incidents. Indeed, if you don't uh, have exposure to a traumatic event, you can't meet the diagnosis for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it is a condition that um, flows from um, exposure to uh, incidents that are life-threatening, uh, serious involved serious physical injury sexual violence and um the individual then experiences uh, repeated intrusive memories linked to that incident so they'll often have flashbacks uh, during the daytime or they'll have nighttime flashbacks in the form of nightmares and these these flashbacks uh, are not just the in individual remembering the incident they they involve the mem the, the the individual remembering the incident without choosing to do so. So the flashback just bounces into the forefront of the person's mind, but also brings with the, 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 the memory all the powerful negative emotions they experienced during the trauma, the intense fear, the sense of being trapped, helplessness, and, and the very physical sensations that they experienced during the trauma. So, for example, if a, if a person has been violently uh, sexually assaulted, they will re-experience those awful, awful physical sensations in the flashback. So these flashbacks are extremely distressing. Uh, and as a consequence of those flashbacks, people try and do all sorts of things to avoid remembering the trauma in this way. So they'll avoid going back to the scene of the trauma. They'll avoid trying to watch TV programs that remind them of a similar traumatic incident. And they'll try to avoid even going outdoors if they feel threatened by other individuals who in some remote way resemble the, the person who was involved in inflicting the trauma if it was an interpersonal traumatic incident. Uh, and with these uh, 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 main symptoms, they also experience these very high levels of hyperarousal. So they'll be on the lookout for danger all the time. They'll, they'll feel highly unsettled. They feel um, highly sort of hypervigilant. And, and, and this generates really powerful physical um, uh, disabling uh, symptoms as well. So they'll have awful, you know, they'll talk about these awful physical conditions in their tummy and headaches and so on because of this constant high state of hyperarousal. So that's PTSD, which is the main um, uh, sort of, but not only mental health problem linked to trauma. Uh, there are others that we will probably talk about later, hopefully, that include depression, other forms of anxiety, and particularly linked to a traumatic episode such as a pandemic involving lots of death. We have this recently uh, developed diagnostic category of complicated grief, prolonged grief disorder, uh, which is different from PTSD, but relates to it in some, uh, some manners, and we'll perhaps discuss that later on. Okay, thank you, Michael. And Perhaps, Karen, if you can give us an overview of the neurobiological effect. Yes, of course, Anne. Now, Michael uh, drew the distinction between psychological trauma and physical trauma, but then he went on to say, of course, that many individuals suffer both. You know, clearly that occurs if somebody's caught up in a bomb explosion. They may have the concussive effects of the 
bomb blast itself or shrapnel injuries, but of course they're also psychologically uh, damaged by the event. The same happens in a car crash. And of course the same can happen today when somebody wakes up in an intensive care unit after being on a ventilator because they've had coronavirus and they've been ventilated for a period of days or even weeks. They've suffered a physical trauma, their body's been invaded by the virus with all that that means, including, including the cerebral effects. And they've also suffered the psychological trauma, which we know arises from a period of time in the intensive care unit. So it's really important to think about the biology of what happens when somebody is traumatised or stressed. Uh, First of all, the stress response. Uh, And Michael's alluded to that again in his earlier comments. Uh, It's normal to react to stress, uh, and in particular to acute stress. Uh, Most people have heard of the fight or flight response, which we know must have existed since uh, early uh, humankind, when if you're confronted by a threat, either you had to fight or you had to to fly, you had to escape. And the fight-or-flight response is still very relevant today. And something goes wrong, if if you put it that way, when somebody is developing post-traumatic stress disorder, in that that fight-or-flight response, instead of diminishing over a relatively short period of time, in a way continues or it echoes uh, thereafter. And that's why we think uh, people lay down memories that they shouldn't lay down or normally would not lay down, uh, and you have the long-term consequences of trauma. Now, the other thing to think about is the actual direct physical effects on the brain uh, of a traumatic incident. Sometimes direct brain injury may occur, so somebody, again, who suffers from a concussive experience, a bomb explosion, that may directly affect their brain. Uh, There may be lasting damage. Somebody who suffers a head injury, of course, there may be lasting damage. But it's also... uh, very interesting to know and important to understand that psychological trauma in itself can actually lead to changes in certain areas of the brain, uh, in particular an area called the hippocampus. Now the hippocampus is a very small part of the brain, it's quite central uh, in location, uh, anatomically speaking. It's called the hippocampus because it looks like a seahorse lying on its side, uh, and the name of the common seahorse is the hippocampi hippocampi, so it's named after the seahorse. And it was discovered in the 1990s when brain imaging studies were carried out on veterans of the Vietnam War in the, American, in the United States of America. The people who'd been through that war and who were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, their hippocampus was smaller than a person who'd been through the war and who was not suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, that's quite a startling finding. Nobody ever thought of that before, that, that could possibly happen, that the brain could be affected in such a direct sense. Other studies have shown very interesting findings, for example, London taxi drivers, uh, who historically speaking, traditionally had to learn off the the street directory of London and had to intensively study in order to do so. Their hippocampi had actually grown in size, so they developed their brain. Airline pilots who were exposed to uh, repeated episodes of jet lag, their hippocampi was also shrunken uh, over a period of time. So the brain is a very plastic organ. Uh, it can be impacted adversely, but can also recover. And that last point is very, very important. That's the good news story, if there is a good news story in this, in that the biological changes we see after psychological trauma can be reversed. And we know they can be reversed both by pharmacological interventions and by psychological interventions. I won't say anything more about psychological interventions for the moment. Michael will come back to that. But pharmacological interventions such as antidepressants, the use of antidepressants carefully uh, used of course and and titrated against side effects and against response can actually reverse the changes that we sometimes see in the brains of those who have been psychologically traumatized so understanding the physical and the psychological aspects of trauma is very very important thank you Karen, for that for that very interesting overview and and michael also i was particularly taken by the analogy with seahorse and how, how how that was explained and brought it home for me so thank you for that just following on from that Kieran, um, in terms of the current pandemic, do you think that the level of trauma will will get worse? Will it be heightened by by COVID nineteen? And if so, why? Well, as I've already mentioned, and I, I think it is entirely reasonable to see the onset of the pandemic and the outworkings of the pandemic as a form of trauma. You can argue that everyone's been traumatized to one extent or another. We've all gone through traumatic experiences. We've been locked up in our own houses. Uh, worrying about loved ones and perhaps actually being directly affected in one way or the other. So that, that's a form of trauma. The general population in the early days of the lockdown, uh, we, we could we could demonstrate that there was an increase in low-level anxiety and depression uh, and a sense of uncertainty. That's understandable and we shouldn't pathologise it. We should see that as being a normal response to unusual times. And the vast majority of people got through that. 
but it's clear from previous studies of what we call mass trauma events that a minority of the population will have long-lasting effects and some people will develop depressions of episodes of depression or episodes of anxiety for the first time ever. We also know that patients who are already in contact with psychiatric services, those individuals who already had established depression or anxiety, are quite likely to see their condition worsen. Uh, and that may be because they've less contact with services. It may be because the heightened sense of anxiety. It may be because they forget to take their medication because nobody reminds them or they forget simply because they're distracted. Or individuals use alcohol or drugs of abuse in order to cope. So there's lots of factors at play. It's also important in this to not lose sight of staff, the staff in all health services, in particular those staff who are most in the front line. They have been exposed to a lot of psychological trauma over a relatively short space of time, in particular those who had to deal uh, with multiple deaths, uh, premature deaths and deaths that they found difficult to to prevent. Uh, obviously that's a form of trauma as well. So there's, there's, there's a lot uh, of evidence of traumatic events indirectly because of the pandemic. Those individuals who've become ill, in particular those who've become very ill, who've ended up in intensive care units and on ventilators, it is likely that we will see in the coming weeks and months an increased rate of post-traumatic stress disorder for this population group. That's to be expected. We know that already from previous studies of individuals who've been through intensive care environments and we expect to see it again in the coming period. It is also important to differentiate between different Age groups in the population, you know, adults, most adults, if they're fit and healthy and are able to go about their day-to-day lives, have maybe suffered little in the way of trauma. Those individuals who have any type of chronic illness perhaps suffered more psychologically and are more likely, were more likely to see long-term consequences. And older people in particular, uh, who will have worried a lot over the last number of months, again, will have, uh, have suffered adverse uh, consequences in many, many cases. Children uh, also will have been troubled by recent events, but I think Michael wants to comment on that rather than myself. Thank you, Karen. Yeah, um, I think we um, have a lot to learn about the uh, psychological effects of these such events. They are unusual, but we have got some historical examples um, of other pandemics and epidemics such as the SARS <clears throat> epidemic and from those we from the studies that have been done after previous such phenomena there has been an increase in mental health disorders in those societies uh, uh, PTSD, various forms of anxiety, <laughs> depression and other conditions so based on the research of previous uh, st- uh, episodes, similar episodes we can see already that we have an, uh, uh, you know, an evidence uh, is already suggesting that we will have an increase in mental health problems here. Um, Kieran has mentioned some of those, and I think that within the general population, there are some groups that are more vulnerable than, than others. Uh, children uh, are a particular group that we have to watch out for. Uh, we've got them returning to school at the moment, which is good. Um, but even that uh, uh, normal activity is being undertaken in an, uh, unusual circumstances with all sorts of restrictions. Uh, kids are not allowed to play around as they would normally do in the playground. They're being restricted in the classrooms and they're, they're set out in separate groups and so on. So the normal explorative activities of children are being restrained by the restrictions to protect um, the whole of society from COVID-19. Children will also have experienced death in their families, perhaps from their grandparents and other people who uh, died due to COVID-19, but have not been able to engage in normal rituals uh, to come to terms with the death of their loved one or their family member. And these are all potentially traumatic experiences for kids. We also know that there are issues in relation to the pressure that uh, uh, COVID-19 and the restrictions and the lockdown and so on have generated within families. So there's been a lot of family stress. There's been an increase reported in terms of domestic violence to the police and others. There has been a record, uh, you know, a, a, a dramatic increase in the sales of alcohol in off licenses and supermarkets. So people are resorting to alcohol and other forms of addictions, drugs, to try to cope with the strain of the pandemic. And these, of course, we know are factors that relate to family stress and family violence and so on. 
and children are caught up in the middle of this. But unlike adults, children tend not to be able to report these things, so they tend to suffer in silence very often from such social pressures. Um, and so we will see an increase in mental health problems amongst children and young people. Most most will be fine. Most will adapt to these circumstances as kids do, but there will be uh, you know a, a subsection who will uh, suffer from mental health problems, and we have to make sure that we are able to uh, listen to those kids via schools and other channels, get them access to uh, services uh, if they need them, and make sure that the services they get have a strong evidence base to help them, rather than simply um, a service that uh, we've delivered for decades, but we've never really researched to check whether or not it works or not. So kids are vulnerable. Kieran's already talked about older people. Um, Older people have an increased risk of death uh, due to COVID-19. It's quite startling from the studies uh, already undertaken that, um, you know, whilst they may represent uh, a small percentage of those admitted to hospital, uh, they uh, do represent a large percentage of those who actually die or require intensive care or ventilation whilst in the hospital. But there's also all the other secondary effects for older people that comes with uh, the shielding and self-isolation. Um, uh, you know, there's lots of studies that we know about that, that report the effects of social isolation uh, on people's mental health. And if people become socially disconnected because of shielding, then they become more vulnerable. So we will see an increase, not uh, just in th- conditions such as PTSD, but in conditions such as depression um, amongst older people. And with this uh, uh, social disconnection, we also know uh, there will be negative effects, not just on their mental health, but on their physical health, lack of exercise uh, and so on will have an impact. So across the spectrum, from very young children right up to the very uh, elderly in our population, you know, this this pandemic will play out with, I, I suspect, an increase in mental illness uh, and we have to make sure we're ready to, through the trauma network and others, to identify and respond to those groups. Okay, well, just to come, if I could just come in again at that point, yeah. because Michael and I, I think, have both commented on the possible negative impacts of the pandemic and the issue of vulnerability, that some people are more vulnerable than others to the negative impact. And, that, and that's all true and it's accurate. But I think it is important that we have a balanced approach and that we state clearly and at all times that most people will get through this and will be will be okay even those who suffered an increase in low level anxiety and depression in the early days will by now probably have you know regained their equilibrium and will be will have adjusted to the new the new reality as we often call it we shouldn't overstate what's happening uh, and i think sometimes unfortunate language is used you know for example that, that we'll be suffering from an epidemic of mental health problems or mental illness in the coming period or there's a tsunami of mental health problems coming coming towards us. There will be an increase. I think that's fairly clear. I'd be very surprised if there wasn't an increase in common mental health problems and anxiety and depression. There may be an impact on rates of self-harm and potentially in rates of suicide, but there may not be. Uh, but as we know from previous mass casualty events and for traumatic uh, periods which affected wider society, sometimes the suicide rate can actually go down. So, for example, in a wartime situation, often the suicide rate goes down initially. So it's just that sense of balance is very important. It's important to be led by the evidence. But there is evidence from previous events and already from the last few months that there will be an increase, but probably an increase that will be measurable and containable and that we can meet the needs of those individuals who do suffer adverse effects, just as Michael outlined in his in his last few comments. Yeah, I agree with Kieran. I think that um, it is important that we, ha- that we have a correct balance. Um, even those who develop... Um, acute stress disorder and acute PTSD. Uh, we know that over a period of 12 to 18 months that um, 60% of those people will recover without any intervention, uh, so they don't need help. The bad news is that between 30 and 40% won't, won't recover if they have developed PTSD. And I suppose um, if, you, if, you, if you apply that sort of um, model across the population, um, most people who will suffer uh, acute stress and uh, acute mental health problems after an incident or in the early phase of this pandemic will, will, will adapt and recover. The question for us is that we must have a method in place to 
screen and identify those who are struggling. And I suppose part of the, the, the effect of a pandemic is that the very services that we're relying on to identify and screen and, and get access to those in the population themselves are under pressure. So the health services, uh, social work services and so on, um, staff in those organisations are trying to work in these unusual circumstances. So it is really, really important that um, the, uh, the government and the Department of Health uh, uh, ensure that we have adequately resourced entities to uh, you know, monitor the needs of the population. I refer to the trauma network as being one of those. Uh, uh, but that there has to be a linking in with you know social services, with the hospital services, and so on, and that we, with the teachers and the schools and so on, identify those individuals who are not in, uh, who are suffering or who are su- su- suggesting they're having difficulties uh, amongst kids, uh, uh, and that we keep an eye on the very old population who are socially isolated. So we have mechanisms in place to screen, identify, and target help to those who need it and ensure that the help that's offered has an evidence base for efficacy, I suppose. Okay, well, just just on that point, Michael, um, there's a few um, really valuable points raised there. First, that sometimes about the sensationalism of the of the language used and how that can negatively impact on what we're trying to do in terms of service provision. But also, I think anecdotally, we've seen a rise in, in cases. I work with the CAMS team when I work in drugs and alcohol, and in both um, subpopulations, we are seeing a rise uh, in people accessing services for SMIs and for anxiety and depression and increased drug and alcohol use. So just on that point, uh, Michael and Kieran, what lessons have we learned from that first phase of the pandemic? And as some people are predicting now we're moving into the second phase, hopefully not, but we may be. Uh, what, what can services do, Michael uh, and Kieran, in order to, to, to deal with the issues that we've already experienced? Well, I'd maybe comment firstly on just on the impact to date, what we know, and there's a lot we don't know. The expectation has been that we would see an increase in rates of referral from general practitioners to mental health services of individuals with with an anxiety presentation or a a presentation of low mood. And we'd see that both in children and adolescents, but also in adults. In Northern Ireland to date, we haven't seen that to a significant extent, but it may be that the fact that individuals, many people have been staying away from their GP and GPs uh, have been trying to manage their services distantly without seeing individuals face to face. It might be that that disguises what's been happening. It's not quite clear yet. Uh, and I understand in England, for example, there has been an increase in rates of presentation of individuals with anxiety and depression. So that's, that's probably on its way. What we have seen in Northern Ireland is uh, major pressure on psychiatric inpatient beds. Uh, uh, Most beds in psychiatric hospitals in Northern Ireland are filled as we speak today. And the individuals who are in those beds are mostly people who are already ill before the pandemic, often with a psychotic illness, a psychotic illness being a severe illness, which means the person has lost contact with reality, conditions such as schizophrenia, uh, people who are troubled by delusions or hallucinations. And there is some evidence that many of those individuals have, have been very uh, adversely impacted by the pandemic, either because they lost contact with services because everything was just so difficult in those initial weeks or months, or because the concerns and worries that they had, natural concerns and worries, became magnified and caused a deterioration in their health and they were admitted to hospital. So that's the current situation. Major pressure on all psychiatric beds in Northern Ireland for individuals with very serious mental health conditions like schizophrenia. Not yet a major increase in referrals of those with anxiety and depression. But the evidence from England is that it's probably on its way and within a few weeks or a few months we'll probably see this. Yes, I agree with Kieran. Uh, and I think um, there are you know, a number of factors that may well um, relate to this not the, the spike not sort of um, moving into the mental health teams and so on. <clears throat> For example, how we deliver services has changed. So um, therapists and the psychological therapy teams are using telephone therapy during the phase because they weren't allowed to see patients face to face. Not everybody wants to come and see a therapist over the phone. Um, and so, you know, that has affected, I'm sure, the rate of referrals from GPs and others. Um, and even therapists themselves are reporting that, um, you know, online 
treatments work for some patients, but for others they can't engage. So the mechanisms via which we deliver our services may well be impacting on the uptake. Um, and so there may be this um, delayed effect when we start going back to normal delivery of services that we see then a rapid rise in referrals from primary care through to uh, um, specialist teams. Um, but I think that um, <clears throat> the key thing is that we now must make sure that we're engaged in real good monitoring and screening and researching the effects that the pandemic is having in the population. <clears throat> Early access to treatments is crucial um, uh, in terms of the rates of recovery uh, with certain mental health problems. But providing also just sensible information to significant others is important. So again, when I talk about children, it's important that schools and teachers and parents know the right things to look out for and the right things to respond with. Um, um, it's import important that our GPs and others in primary care uh, are aware of what's helpful and what's not helpful if someone has symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and so on. And simple advice can often be very effective. For example, um, if someone has been exposed to a, a traumatic incident, um, then they should be advised that sitting, ruminating about it over and over again is very unhelpful. Um, they should be given the skills to break those rumination cycles. Um, they should be taught that um, you know, if they're trying to suppress their memories using alcohol, for example, that's counterproductive. The memories tend to bounce back more frequently and more distressingly, but also there's a risk they'll develop a dependency on the alcohol. So sensible pieces of advice like that in the acute phase of a pandemic can help people to recover without being stuck in chronic mental illness uh, over, over a period of time. And we've been trying to disseminate that advice, <clears throat> I know through the Trauma Network and through handbooks that we've produced for uh, frontline health staff, uh, in the hope that uh, if people engage in these uh, helpful activities and don't engage in unhelpful strategies, it will reduce the uh, uh, chances of developing enduring mental illness over time. Thank you so much uh, for that very helpful and, as you say, simplistic messages that you're trying to disseminate to the community. So thank you for that. Uh, if we could move on now. Um, Michael, if I could ask you... Um, to uh, articulate your experience working with trauma. You have a wide range of experience working in a number of different areas. If you could tell us something about that and how that would help them in dealing and addressing the current issues. Yes. Um, we have, um, my colleagues and I have um, obviously learned uh, a lot from working in the aftermath of the OMA bombing and uh, uh, dealing with other uh, patients who were affected by other uh, troubles related traumas over uh, the next uh, 15, 20 years thereafter. Um, now, I suppose those incidents differ from the pandemic in a sense that they were single incidents. So the OMA bombing was a single incident. Um, we also were uh, involved in providing training and consultation to those who were working in the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, 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 those who were involved in the, the, the bombings and shootings in Norway and uh, the Manchester bombing. Again, they were all single incidents. Um, so in that sense, they differ from the pandemic. Uh, but the uh, troubles as a phenomena has a lot of similarities to the pandemic because the troubles lasted over a prolonged period of time, just like this pandemic may do, well do. The troubles also generated a lot of community uncertainty. People didn't know you know, if they're going out to work in the morning, would they come home in the evening? Would their family be safe and so on? So the troubles had a, a prolonged uncertainty about it. There were repeated episodes of uh, traumatic events. <clears throat> and in some ways the pandemic similar. There will be repeated episodes of increased rates of infection probably over the first year or so. <clears throat> and it's a worldwide phenomenon which uh, renders it slightly different, of course. Um, what we learned from, however, those events is that quite often it, it's not the nature of the trauma itself that predicts good or bad outcomes, but how people respond to them in that immediate aftermath. And so after 9-11, for example, if people locked themselves off and if they sat in their own place and they ruminated about the trauma, they were more likely to develop chronic PTSD. 
if they socially disconnected themselves from others around them, then we find after Manchester and Anoma that was a big factor. Because if you disconnect yourself from those around you, you tend to live more in your head. And so you tend to think about this trauma over and over again. And you magnify the meaning of it in your mind. And so you're more at risk of developing chronic PTSD. Um, and so what we've learned is that it's important that we advise people what to do and what not to do in the immediate aftermath. Um, we also have to ensure that there are uh, good social supports around, especially for the vulnerable groups. I've already mentioned the children and very old people, uh, in order that they can remain socially connected with the good things in life, with what's positive about the world, and not overly focus on the negativity associated with these sorts of events. We don't want kids to start to think uh, about death a lot of the time. We don't want kids to sit worrying and developing anxiety disorders about their health and then go on to develop some form of health anxiety. So we need to ensure that there are resources in place, family resources, families are supported and so on to ensure that kids remain connected with the normal aspects of life that, that, that are healthy uh, and so on. And Kieran's point earlier about the effects on the brain of trauma, um, I mean, is supported by the research that's coming out now uh, in London in relation to children. Uh, we know that uh, adverse traumatic repeated uh, life events actually impacts on the developmental uh, structures in the brain of a child. Uh, and uh, so it has that direct, very physiological impact. But the good news is that provided we uh, identify those kids and get them the uh, you know evidence-based treatments, psychological treatments, uh, that that actually can be modified, that those developmental factors can actually be modified. And so the child has the, you know, retains the capacity of developing into a healthy, healthy adult. Um, so I suppose those are some key learning points from our work with, with other traumas. Um, and the one thing that I do think uh, is useful for us to consider at some point is how we deal with death in these unusual circumstances because complex grief is a relatively new uh, sort of, uh, it's a new diagnostic category, but our knowledge of how we respond to it has really developed in the last 10 to 15 years. And that's a phenomena I, I suspect will arise given the unusual circumstances in which many people unfortunately have died during COVID-19. And Karen, what types of trauma do you think we could expect from the current pandemic situation? Well, it, it might be easiest to answer this um, by breaking it down into four population categories, if you like. So I'll talk about those individuals who actually contract coronavirus, then the general population who are lucky and don't, uh, then those individuals who are currently service users or patients, individuals in contact with psychiatric services, and then finally staff, the, the staff in the health service in particular, but also staff in other uh, frontline services. So for those who've been infected, the the listener already know that the majority of people who get coronavirus are asymptomatic or a very mild illness in the physical sense. And I think we can expect the same in terms of mental health outcomes. So the majority of people will get a mild illness and it will also perhaps be a little unsettled by it for a day or two. Might worry they're going to become more ill. They don't become more ill and they will forget about it effectively. Some individuals will develop more pronounced anxiety symptoms or low mood, perhaps because they are very worried. Uh, but for those individuals, these symptoms will be self-limiting and will disappear in time. Some uh, people, of course, will become more ill, become more physically ill. Even if they remain at home, they might be short of breath. They will experience uh, the, the, the whole event has been life-threatening. They'll worry uh, and they are likely to become more anxious or more depressed than the average person. And those, of course, who become most seriously ill, uh, who require hospitalisation, and or ventilation and or an intensive care unit admission, those individuals are most likely to suffer long-term consequences. And that might manifest itself as an anxiety disorder, uh, as a depressive disorder, you know, a major depression, but most likely as post-traumatic stress disorder as, as a direct consequence of the trauma. So, so those are the symptoms and the conditions we might expect to arise. It's also very important to say at this point that we know that the virus has a direct cerebral effect. It has a direct effect on the brain. Now, this isn't surprising because all viruses can affect the brain to one extent or another. The virus that causes measles, for example, can cause a very, very serious, uh, life-threatening uh, brain complications, cerebral complications. So it's not a surprise. 
the exact extent to which the coronavirus, COVID-19, can affect the brain is not fully understood and the long-term consequences are not fully understood. But that's something that we have to be very mindful of and we need to think about it. And major research studies are underway now following up individuals who've recovered from coronavirus to try and fully understand the impact on the brain. And listeners will probably also have heard the the term, which has been used a lot now in the media, of long COVID. So that's about the long-term consequences of a COVID infection, COVID-19 infection. Again, it's, it's no surprise that there may be long-term consequences. We've known for decades uh, that many viruses uh, have uh, long-term syndromes uh, arising afterwards. So measles, again, for example, or other viruses, some people don't seem to recover quickly and they can feel fatigued or suffer low-level symptoms such as muscle pains uh, or some or uh, an inability to concentrate and to focus uh, for a long period of time. So we know post-viral syndromes arise with other viruses. So post-viral syndromes arising after COVID are to be expected. Uh, we know that there's a lot of concern about impact on various bodily sy- symptoms after COVID uh, infection. So on the renal system, uh, on, the, on the heart, on the lungs. So we need to do more research into this. There was a research study out earlier this week suggesting that the, the long-term impact on the lungs is perhaps perhaps less than we feared so that, that's good news so a lot a lot more to learn in terms of the general population uh, again as i've already mentioned we know that in the early days most people suffered an increase in anxiety symptoms a sense of uncertainty perhaps uh, a dip in their mood most people felt isolated to one extent or another because of the lockdown many people uh, used alcohol uh, to help them cope uh, and some people uh, many people unfortunately many many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands in the uk context have already suffered uh, the loss of a loved one and have have grieved the loss of a loved one so so that that constellation of increased anxiety and uh, symptoms low mood increased isolation perhaps the use of alcohol perhaps a direct experience of grief that will result in increase in anxiety disorders and depressive disorders, we can expect that. The third category are those individuals who already are service users or patients, they're already in contact with services, Uh, they will have suffered directly and indirectly. Uh, They will have suffered indirectly in the sense that the services they would normally avail of weren't always available in the early days of the pandemic, or if they were available or available online, which may or may not have been sufficient for them. Uh, they may be, become a bit dislocated in their lives in general, which meant that they didn't take their medication. Various impacts were possible. So it's, that's, that's very important to note. And great efforts have been made at the present time to ensure that if we do go into a second phase of the pandemic, a second surge, which does seem more likely uh, than not, that those individuals will be better protected this time around than they were perhaps the first time around. And finally, the impact of the, of the pandemic on staff, especially health service staff, should not be discounted or underplayed. Uh, many individuals, in particular those who work in acute medicine and respiratory wards and A&E departments and intensive care units, have been under extreme pressure for many, many months, have dealt with uh, a pandemic unlike anything they've ever dealt with before, uh, have dealt with uh, uh, multiple casualties and multiple deaths in a way that they've never had to deal with before. At times will have felt helpless and unable to go to the assistance of others and that's a very discomforting feeling for most people. So we will expect to see higher levels of burnout than we would normally expect, higher levels of depression, anxiety, and in particular higher levels of post-traumatic stress disorder than we normally see in these populations. That's why it's very important, as Michael's already mentioned, that, that we screen individuals who work in the health service to ensure we pick up on any problems that are arising at an early stage, because early intervention and appropriate treatments at an early stage can make a big, big difference, and that's, that's very important as we move into this next phase. I agree with Kieran. I think that you know it, it. It's very useful to sort of think about um, sort of groups within the population who may be more at risk. Um, one of the one of the many things we know about now about PTSD is that there are some groups that are at higher risk of developing post traumatic stress disorder. One of those groups is those, of course, who are working in frontline services, paramedics, any staff, and so on. They're uh, likely to be more at risk. Um, of developing PTSD in the general population, so 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 we need to look we need to look uh, uh, and test those groups not just for their physical health. So testing them for COVID nineteen is of course crucially important, but equally important is testing them in relation to their mental health. So we need to keep an eye on their mental health over time, um, systematically, uh, and ensure that they have uh, that they that they ha- that that they're acknowledged and that 
it's legitimised for them to sort of, uh, you know, come forward if they're suffering from mental ill health problems and that we have adequate services in place to respond to their needs. Um, on this issue, could I just comment a bit complex grief? Because I think it is, uh, you know, I've, I've seen some newspaper reports about how people are coping with the pandemic that haven't been particularly helpful. Um, and I think that we have to recognise that complex grief or what's now called prolonged grief disorder it differs from normal grief in a whole number of ways. I mean, when we lose someone, you know, in less traumatic circumstances, people can usually acknowledge the death and adapt to the loss, and they don't usually get really intensely angry over the loss. They're also usually able to remain socially connected and emotionally connected with other people, and their trust in others and life generally remains. But all of those, all of those characteristics... Uh, tend to disappear when it comes to complex grief. Complex grief, there's a persistent yearning uh, for the person who has died, there's a real profound yearning for the deceased, and people become preoccupied about the circumstances of the death. So they try to make sense of it, they overthink the whole, uh, uh, what has happened in relation to the death for long periods of time. And a bit like the rumination with PTSD, in complex grief, this rumination and trying to make sense of what happened generates profound, uh, deep emotional loss in relation to the bereavement process. And it renders it very difficult to accept the death. The feelings persist, uh, that the person's almost still part of their life. Uh, and then people get very angry about the, the death and the cause of the death and they portion blame to other people. There's a sense of guilt. All these phenomena differentiate complex grief from normal grief and I suspect given the circumstances in which people have lost loved ones in the pandemic we're going to get a, we're going to get an increase in these sorts of presentations into our clinics as well um, you know people haven't been able to use the normal rituals to adapt to the loss in our culture wakes funerals are very important rituals that people would normally use there's not been the opportunity to say goodbye if your loved one has died in a COVID ward and you haven't been able to get access to see them before they've died. All of these factors, I think, will complicate the, the loss that goes with uh, death and bereavement as a result of COVID-19. So we need to keep an eye for this phenomenon as well. Okay, thank you both. Um, I was particularly interested in one of the the... the the times when the peak was on its way down and media were, were struggling to, to, to find something to sensationalize. There was that focus on the long COVID and a lot of fear generated by this is a new virus that attacks the brain and attacks the renal system attacks. This is unprecedented. So it's really interesting to hear and for the listeners, um, Kieran, how that is not the case and how viruses, um, in general may do that because it was, it was, patched as a new virus that can attack absolutely everything. So for our listeners, that's, that's really quite reassuring. Thank you. Okay, so moving on. Um, I know we have touched upon some treatment and some uh, models of service provision and screening and assessment and so on. But if we could just expand on that perhaps uh, in the next section and think about the evidence-based psychosocial interventions and um, pharmacological interventions and so on. If if you could expand on that, if we could start with you, Kieran, please. Yes, Anne. Uh, now, medications, pharmacological treatments uh, certainly have their place, have their place always have their place in the treatment of psychiatric conditions such as depression and sometimes anxiety and they will have an important role to play in the coming period. But usually, most often, pharmacological interventions or medications are used alongside and with psychological interventions and that's nearly always the case uh, in modern uh, mental health services. So it's very important that we note this. Post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, the, the best treatments are psychological treatments. Uh, and medications uh, can be of assistance, uh, of second or third line, but, but they aren't the key in most uh, cases. 
Depression is somewhat different. When somebody's very depressed, often medication is the first-line treatment because until the person begins to improve, until their, their mood picks up a little bit, it's very difficult for them to actually engage in a psychological treatment. So without the medication, they don't get to the point where they can engage. But again, it's often that combination is most important. So it, so it is... It, it is vital now that in the next period that we prepare mental health services and primary care services for what we expect to be an increase in referrals and that we treat appropriately. Because early recognition of problems, early treatment of problems means down the line that we will have less of a, of a tail, less of a, of a mental health tail. But I do believe the psychological interventions at this time are more important and I think Michael will comment on that. And then perhaps I'll maybe come back in after that and just talk about the organisational response because being properly organised, a comprehensive response on a regional basis, it's very, very important at this time. Okay, thank you, Michael. Uh, thanks, Kieran. Yeah, I, and just before I talk about the psychological treatments, I do think it's important also that we recognise that there are important social processes that can help people adapt to um, you know, the, the, the psychological effects of this pandemic. Um, I think you know, in relation to the, the mass quarantine, for example, you know, the altruism that we've seen in our society can be really helpful. The sacrifices that other people make. Uh, in the street where I live, there are a number of uh, very old people who were uh, forced to self-isolate. And it was lovely to see the neighbours rallying around, wrapping their door, leaving you know, boxes of groceries outside on a Saturday morning for them. And, and doing so in a very socially distant uh, uh, manner. So all of these things will help people adapt to the negative effects of the, the, the pandemic. Um, so I think th th this is important to bear in mind um, that what we offer are additional to and not a substitute for these important normal community and social support systems. Um, providing people with you know, practical advice on how to cope with stress and anxiety is important. Um, giving people messages such as it's okay to feel anxious, it's normal to feel anxious in these circumstances, but it is a short-term phenomenon. There will be an end to this. And if you can do the right things and not get hooked onto negative ways of trying to cope with this, come the end point, you'll feel a lot better. Using technology to improve social networking, encouraging people to do, you know, to, to link in with those they can't meet using uh, sort of Zoom and so on. And providing support for our colleagues. Kieran's talked about the vulnerability of our frontline health service staff making sure the support systems are there for them, making sure they don't feel isolated or stigmatised by working in these vulnerable locations is important. So in terms of what we offer psychologically, <clears throat> um, we have a lot of evidence now that some uh, interventions are really effective. And two of those in relation to post-traumatic stress disorder are trauma-focused CBT and uh, EMDR. EMDR is a, is, a, is, is a form of exposure therapy uh, uh, which uh, uh, revisits the trauma memory and helps to um, remove the powerful emotions associated with that memory, the intense fear and so on. But the therapy that has the really strongest evidence base is trauma-focused CBT. And this has been tested now <coughs> over 25, 30 years, refined and improved. Um, uh, so that we now have uh, really strong recovery rates and very uh, very low dropout rates, which we would have had in the 1980s. And this works by uh, enabling the, the person to visit the trauma memory, not to avoid those awful flashbacks that they tend to do when they've got PTSD by suppressing them using alcohol, avoidance systems and so on, but enabling the person in a controlled environment of a clinic to revisit the trauma memory uh, and to find and unearth the problematic parts of that memory that are generating the distressing emotions. And usually these are hot spots linked to a trauma that are generating uh, very powerful negative meanings about what it means for the person now, at this moment in time and in the future. And we can modify those meanings when we discover what they are. And we also can help the person update the memory by filling in gaps. Very often trauma memories have huge gaps in them or they're distorted and disjointed. So you lose a loved one during the pandemic, you visited them in the hospital, you looked at them through the screen, but you vaguely remember how they look like. 
And in the weeks afterwards, in, in the, when you're ruminating about what happened, often you can generate all sorts of memories that are inaccurate, but they're usually persecutory memories that make you feel bad. You should have done more to help. Why did you not stay a little bit longer? Perhaps the person would have been able to see you through the screen and you could have, you know, you could have added value to their life and made their parting from this life less painful. All these sorts of appraisals are generated uh, in the aftermath of a trauma like this. So we, in the trauma memory, we can modify those meanings, update the memory and enable the person to reclaim their lives again. And the PTSD tends to dissipate very effectively. Equally important is that we recognize that there are treatments actually that are very unhelpful and some that we now have evidence that can make things worse. There is a, an immediate uh, treatment after trauma called critical incident stress debriefing, CISD, and uh, it was offered for decades and still is in some places, unfortunately. Only after we conducted some randomized controlled trials did we realize that the people who received the CISD intervention were actually doing worse than those who got no intervention at all. So something about the intervention was actually causing harm. We have to recognize that when, you know, our understanding of, of psychological treatments now are a lot more sophisticated. And we know that some work okay for certain conditions, but they actually are counterproductive for others. Again, for example, generic counseling. If someone suffers from mild depression or moderate depression, it can be very helpful. But when it comes to post-traumatic stress disorder, it's actually quite counterproductive because the person can use the generic counselling to talk around the trauma rather than going into the trauma memory, which they need to do. So, you know, our more sophisticated knowledge now about these uh, treatments is very important in times like this so that we can ensure people get treatments that work and they certainly don't get treatments that can cause harm. Yeah. I, I might just comment at this point then, uh, add on the organisational response, and by that I mean how we actually, as a system in, in the Northern Ireland wide sense, how we respond to these, uh, to to the pandemic, the mental health consequences of the pandemic, and I think we can learn directly from the troubles uh, when we're considering the way forward. In the very early days of the troubles, in the late sixties, early seventies, into the nineteen eighties, in those initial phases, the response was largely pragmatic. Uh, GPs in particular and mental health services also uh, and, and social services and uh, other services had to respond pragmatically to what is happening around them on the streets uh, and it was literally around them on the streets uh, and was also impacting of course on the staff who worked in those services. Often that did mean that GPs used medication to try and assist people who are you know, distressed after a violent incident or the loss of a loved one uh, and that at the time was essentially all that was available. In the later years of the Troubles, the response became more thought through and more organised, but somewhat piecemeal. Michael's already referred to the, the, what happened after the Oma bomb, and that was very important. But that was in 1998 and the years afterwards. It was long after the, the initial years of the, of the Troubles. And it's also very important to mention the heroic efforts of the community and the voluntary sector, where many, many groups uh, were developed, especially in the later years of the Troubles. Many groups came together uh, and organised uh, local communities in an attempt to try and uh, mitigate against the worst mental health effects of the troubles. But we learned from all of this. We learned that a, a pragmatic response or a piecemeal response or relying on one sector alone was insufficient. Uh, and that's why we have developed uh, the regional trauma network over the course of the last number of years. So the regional trauma network is a a direct outworking of the Stormont House Agreement, which was an intergovernmental uh, agreement. Uh, and one aspect of it was a commitment to develop a network uh, of therapists across the community and the voluntary and the statutory sector who would work together in order to assist individuals who, re who require supported interventions. It has adopted a step care approach, which means that those individuals who are most at need are likely to be in contact with statutory service, with the health service, and other individuals who perhaps aren't acutely unwell but require some support uh, or lower level interventions are in contact with the community and voluntary sector, and individuals can move up and down through the different sectors as appropriate. So it's very important we get it right uh, and that appropriate treatments are delivered by the right person at the right time. And what we mean by appropriate treatment is what Michael has just outlined, is those treatments that, that work uh, and don't have a negative or deleterious effect. So the evidence is there. The evidence is there from studies all over the world, and we have to apply that evidence. 
In the next period, that means that we have to screen when appropriate. So we screen individuals who are working in the health service, for example, for post-traumatic stress disorder. We intervene early. We signpost uh, everyone who requires it uh, to appropriate services. Uh, and we measure outcomes. We measure what we're doing. Uh, and throughout all of this, despite the, the nature of the, the, the pandemic and the pressure puts on everyone, it's very important that we don't forget about the research effort to fully understand what it is we're trying to achieve and that we continue to train we train individuals in the most appropriate uh, therapies that have a good evidence base in, uh, in 2020. Okay, thank you both for that response. Uh, is anybody anything else to add before we close the session? I just want to comment, because it came up earlier, about the impact of the media. Um, I think that there's been a, um, some excellent coverage uh, about the effects of the pandemic in the media, and that's been really helpful. Um, but there also has been some coverage which has been a wee bit sensationalised um, and that's been unhelpful. Um, you know, people are already worrying about this period of uncertainty, worrying about their health, the impact on their families, the impact on the future. Uh, the economy uh, is suffering. Will I have a job? Will my family have a house over our heads? And, um, you know, when you get a lot of repeated, uh, uh, exaggerated, sensationalist stories in some of the media, that just adds another whole level uh, of fear to, and something to be concerned about. Indeed, after 9-11, uh, in some of the studies that were done in the next year, um, <clears throat> people who develop PTSD didn't develop it as a consequence of being at the sites of the Twin Towers but as a consequence of the repeated exposure to the media showing the two planes crashing into the Twin Towers, that was the, that was the traumatic event for them that developed PTSD. So we shouldn't underestimate the power of media in terms of affecting how people adapt to such pandemics. It's also a reason why I think podcasts like this can be really helpful uh, because we, it allows us to disseminate um, what we know about the likely impact of, co of COVID-19 and what we don't know, uh, what we know about the sorts of interventions that are likely to be helpful and what are less likely to be helpful. And what we know about sort of what needs to be done uh, and what, you know, we still have to learn about what needs to be done. So, you know, hopefully that uh, podcasts like this can, can, can complement the really good work that's been done by some uh, of uh, the newspapers and other quarters in the media. Yes, I could, I'd make a few final comments too. Uh, just, just in passing, the point that Michael just made about the economic impact of the pandemic and the, the recession that's now unfolding, uh, that's something that we perhaps haven't mentioned enough during the course of this podcast. It's very, very important. Any economic recession has an impact on mental health. The suicide rate will go up, for example, uh, and, and we've that's been demonstrated in multiple research studies over many decades. And often there's a lag effect. So you have the recession, say the recession occurs in a defined period of time and the mental health impact occurs one, two, three years later, even four or five years later. So it's very important that we note that. With regard to the pandemic itself, uh, just a few final comments. It's often been said that, we, that this is an unprecedented time. We're living through unprecedented times. And of course, that's true. Uh, only those who are alive during the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920 have lived through a period which is you know, very, very similar. But I think that can be a little bit overstated because the, the pandemic is a form of trauma and none of us have gone through life without suffering some form of trauma uh, and many of us have suffered you know, multiple traumas. That happens. And in Northern Ireland, we have suffered mass societal trauma over a period of 40 to 50 years. And even in the United Kingdom, England, Scotland and Wales, the experience of World War II, it is receding. But in the collective memory, it, it's not very long ago and many older people remember World War II. So it's important that we recognise that and we don't overstate the unprecedented nature of what we're living through. And that's not to normalise what's abnormal, but it's to reassure people that we will get through this. And just in the past, as in the past, most people will be okay. That's the lesson of the troubles. Many individuals were affected and some people had uh, suffered terrible loss uh, and suffered terrible injuries uh, and, and in many senses have, uh, have, have never quite recovered. So we recognise that and we accept that. But most people got through it reasonably okay, reasonably intact. 
Uh, and as Michael's already mentioned, most people will get through this pandemic intact and some people will actually, in a sense, benefit uh, you know, through the sense of altruism and all being in it together and the sense of cooperation and working towards a common goal. Uh, and locally, across the UK and the south of Ireland and internationally, the vast majority of people have, have been commendable in their response to the pandemic, and that's very important. Some people will, will grow from this uh, and will be psychologically stronger uh, and, and may experience what is sometimes called post-traumatic growth. There'll be stronger people afterwards. So that's important to say. Finally, it's important to say that some people will develop a mental health disorder. We, we recognise that. That's a certainty. It's difficult to know how many. And I don't think it's going to be a tsunami or, a, or a, a, an epidemic, but there will be a noticeable increase. If you do develop a mental health disorder, the services are there across the community voluntary and statutory sector. We know what works. We have the evidence. So the interventions should be appropriate and should be tailored to you uh, and should be agreed with you through a process of what, what we call these days co-production. And if you do access services, if, a, if an intervention is offered to you that is suitable for you, the prognosis will be good in almost all circumstances. Most people recover from mental health disorders, and that's what your expectation should be. Even at the point when you're listening to this podcast, you're feeling perhaps a little bit uh, hopeless about the future. You, you shouldn't feel that way. Contact your GP and access services uh, at, at the next available opportunity. Thank you so much to you both. Thank you for that very insightful, educational, informative uh, podcast and um, where you looked at the trauma within the context of the current pandemic and also offering some fantastic evidence-based guidance and help um, for perhaps our listeners who may be service users or practitioners or researchers, academics or indeed stakeholders uh, in mental health provision and also providing that information at individual, community and structural level. So I have learned so much also. Thank you so very much to Michael and to Kieran. And goodbye from us. <laughs>